I don't think any of us could have imagined in 2019 how much different our lives would be in 2020. I even myself can't believe all the things that uh, resulted from COVID, our response to COVID. People isolated, quarantined in their homes, some of them for months. Um, people um, wearing masks all the time. I still drive by and see people walking outside by themselves wearing masks. Businesses shut down, schools closed for over a year. The first time ever in the history of Christianity that the Catholic Church did not offer public masses for a period of months. People have lost their jobs because they refused to take a vaccine that was developed in a very short period of time. Back in April of 2020, and you can check the record if you want to look at homily from then, I suggested that our responses to COVID might end up being more harmful than COVID itself. Today, I'm convinced that is true. You may disagree with me, and I'm not going to try to change your mind right now, but I just want you to reflect for a moment on how a perceived danger made us radically reoriented our lives as individuals, as families, as a community, as a society. Now, what if I were to tell you there's something far more dangerous than COVID and you can't find a single article about it in the media? No one's talking about it. Very few people think about it. Those who are aware of this great danger, many of them don't even do much to avoid it. What danger am I speaking about? The danger of hell. Many people today say, oh, hell, isn't that an old-fashioned idea? They are what, is te the technical term is universalists. These are, many Christians are universalists. They believe that hell is empty, that in the end, everyone ends up in heaven. Now, those same people, though, the problem is, how do they know that there's a heaven and that people go there? Well, that primary source is Jesus Christ and his teachings, who also teaches us about hell. So you're taking a source, you're taking the teachings of Christ, you're choosing to believe in part of them, but not, not the other part. That is obviously, it's, it's not a comforting thought, but it is a salutary thing to think about. Otherwise, our Lord would not have taught it. And today's gospel is one of many examples. Jesus is asked if, if only few will be saved. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. And then he uses images that he uses in other places in his teachings that are references to hell. He speaks of the master locking the door and saying, I do not know you, saying, depart from me, you evildoers. He speaks of a wailing and of a gnashing of teeth. Other times, he used even more vivid imagery about hell. He referred to hell as Gehenna. Now, for us, it doesn't mean much when we read that. But for a first century Jew, that would immediately produce a strong reaction. Gehenna was a physical place. It was outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where garbage was put and it was burned continuously. The heat was hot, it was hot and the smell was terrible. It had once been a place where child, children were sacrificed to pagan gods. I think Jesus would approve of an approach that was used by public health authorities in the 1990s when they tried to get people to quit smoking. They created these very memorable advertisements. 
There's one of them. I had to look it up, but I remembered it. I just didn't know her name. It features a woman named Debbie Austin. And she's talking to the camera, and she has a hole in her throat. She had her larynx removed because of a cancer, tobacco-related cancer. And so she's talking about how when she was a teenager, she started smoking, how addictive cigarette smoking is. And then near the end, she takes a lit cigarette, puts it in the hole in her throat, and, and smokes from it, inhales from it. Right. And you know, those ads worked, actually. The percentage of Americans who smoke went down drastically. It was an effective approach. It was vivid, memorable, and terrifying. Much like our Lord's preaching on hell and the preaching of the apostles and that of Christian preachers throughout the ages. Even the Blessed Virgin Mary used that approach. Remember in 1917, she appeared to those children in Fatima, Portugal. There was an amazing miracle at the end of those appearances. It has been approved by the church as an authentic supernatural occurrence. You may know something of the messages she foretold uh, about wars and suffering that would come if people did not repent, and everything she prophesied came to be. In one of her appearances, she actually showed the children hell, the demons and the human souls there that were suffering. So for most of Christian history, this was something that people took seriously. Except in, in the last century, it started to change. Even today, now, people will say, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. I think those people are ignorant about who God is, what his love is like, and what, what the afterlife is really like. Now, it's true that many people, unfortunately, had a misconception of God as an angry God. And yes, Scripture refers to the wrath of God, but it's not like our human emotion of anger. You know, sometimes we're tired, we're in a bad mood, you know, and we just kind of lash out, and we think maybe that's how God is. Or maybe God is just, he's just looking for us to make some small mistake so he can send us to hell. And that, of course, is not true. Now, if you want to know what kind of emotion the idea of humans going to hell produces in God, you need to go to the passage we read in Luke and read on a few more lines. And it will describe Jesus weeping, crying over Jerusalem. Why was he crying over Jerusalem? Because okay, he knew in 70 AD the armies of Rome would destroy the city. And the church has always interpreted the destruction of Jerusalem as a kind of symbol of final punishment. And so this is God's reaction. God is not happy that anyone would go to hell. But hell exists because of what heaven is. Heaven is not a country club, and it's not a vacation. <laughs> heaven is being in perfect relationship with God, who is ultimate reality. God is the source of life, of joy, of all beauty and delight. God is love. In heaven, God's love flows through you perfectly without any resistance and flows back to God and through all the angels and saints for eternity. But letting the love of God flow through us requires a choice. Otherwise, it would not be love. And so, hell is a choice that we can make. If you see yourself as the center of everything, it's a sin of pride, you cannot enjoy heaven. 
Because God is the center in heaven. If you envy your neighbor's success, you cannot enjoy heaven. In heaven, those with lesser glory rejoice in the greater glory of their brothers and sisters. I mean, can you imagine heaven people saying, that blessed Virgin Mary gets all the attention here, you know? I mean, what does she do to deserve that, right? If you are driven by wrath, by lust, by gluttony, by avarice, if your attitude towards spiritual goods is, meh, that's a sin of sloth, by the way, you can't enjoy heaven. These deadly sins do not get replaced by their opposing virtues with a snap of a finger. The transformation that we need to undergo to really even want to go to heaven involves perseverance and it involves suffering. In our second reading, it is explained to us that God is a loving Father who disciplines His children. This was unpleasant, even for the parents. Those of you who are parents know. I mean, it would be easier you know, to hand your six-year-old a bottle of soda and give them a tablet and let them just go in the room all day and play video games and consume sugar. Right? That would be easier. But it wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be good for them. Right? And of course, discipline is painful, difficult for the, the child who receives it at the time. But later, they look back and they know There's a fruit of discipline, which is a righteous character. And so, if our hearts are so hardened, we refuse to be transformed by the love of God, and we hold to that refusal until death, we'll be in hell. Now, if we are open and we work with God, and let's say we don't get get to where we need to get in that transformation, God in His mercy gives us uh, purgatory, a state of purification. So that's comforting as well. However, I think a lot of people, their mentality as well, as long as I just barely get into purgatory, they'll be fine, right? Because I know eventually I'll be in heaven. I think that's a terrible, terrible idea. So I, this is not, this is not uh, official church teaching, but it's my own insight from a lot of reading, a lot of prayer, that, that the, the purification that happens in purgatory right, is like purification that happens here on earth. Okay? But here on earth, we're actively cooperating with it, and so there is, um, has greater efficacy. So the suffering here, I, I just made up a number. It's a 10 to 1 ratio. You've know? you got to pay 10 times more in purgatory than you do here. So let's just go ahead and work with God in becoming the saints he wants us to become. Remember the, the traditional act of contrition. We say we're sorry to God for... Um, having offended him because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all, because God, you are all good and deserving of all my love. So there's a lower motive and a higher motive, right? And the higher motive is to be sorry for our sins because God is all good. He really is. Jesus Jesus revealed this in abundance. So much evidence for the goodness of God. And yet even those of us who have been walking as disciples with Jesus for a while, we can have these moments of selfishness where it is helpful for us to recall even the lower motive, to fear the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. So I sometimes commit venial sins or or other, other small lapses. I go to confession every month. Sometimes I'm tempted to commit a graver sin, 
And one of the things that keeps me from doing it is I simply say, I don't want to go to hell. And I know for me, God has given me so much knowledge and insight that, that I will be judged by a high standard. Now, Jesus is speaking to his fellow Jews, and he, is, he talks to them about how some of them will be excluded while the patriarchs and prophets gather, recline at table in the kingdom of God with people from all over the globe, all the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews' mind, the Gentiles were all lost anyways. They were the chosen ones. And Jesus is warning us against this kind of presumption. And it might have sounded, the interior dialogue might have sounded like this. You know, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I am an Israelite. For the, for the males, I've been circumcised. I've learned the Torah. I've sacrificed. I made the animal sacrifices at the temple. Of course, my salvation is assured. There's a, a, there's a contemporary version of this. I think it goes something like this. I was baptized Catholic. My grandmother prays a lot. I went to Mass when I was little. I haven't killed anyone, and I'm generally nice. Well, you can see, that's, that's a dangerous complacency. It's setting a low bar. What is the first thing Jesus says in response to that, and that question about how many will be saved? Strive. Strive to enter the narrow gate. God gives us Jesus, and Jesus sacrifices his life for us, and he gives us grace to enable us to love God. But a life of grace includes striving. We must be strong. By God's grace, may we become the kind of people who can enjoy heaven.